Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, as a part of our series called As Children of God, we're, we're working our way through the book of 1 John, this little letter toward the end of the New Testament. And, and if you haven't picked up on this already, you, you'll, you'll notice it's, it's a bit repetitive and kind of circular in its argumentation, but we believe that it's, of course, breathed out by God, and every word of it is for our benefit, and, and so we're, we're coming across some of the same themes. Um, again, just back to what I said a, a minute ago, as I mentioned, I was uh, in Nepal, and, um, and, and what's going on there, I think, can only be described as a sort of book of Acts type work of God. There are in Nepal some 84,000 villages And as recently as five decades ago, so just in the span of of my lifetime, uh, five decades ago, according to Operation World, there was one Christian village in the whole country of Nepal and less than 100 Christians in the whole nation. And now, some 50 years later, there are 13,000 villages in Nepal that have Christian churches and some 600,000 Christians. That's incredible, the work that God's doing there. Bringing people to saving faith, uh, entire villages to saving faith in Him. Um, and as I mentioned, it's a very, uh, very dark place spiritually. There's, there's all kinds of uh, demonic and, and spiritual activity. And yet God is, is bringing people to saving faith, and He's planting these churches in some of the re- most remote areas of the country. There, there, are, there are churches in villages that take a dozen days just to walk to, just to get to. And God's doing incredible things. Now, of course, they're not, they're not big churches. That they, no, they have no building. Uh, they have uh, no budget. Um, they're house churches, just like in the New Testament, where people cram into these little homes, metal shacks. Like, Let me just show you a picture of one of these that I had a chance to visit. Um, a, a little house where people are spilling out the doors, worshiping. There, there were 27 people packed in this little tiny house, uh, no air conditioning, the electricity was kind of off and on, very spotty. Uh, there, there's, again, there's very little there. And yet, in all these, villi- these villages all across Nepal, God is bringing people to saving faith and, and planting these churches. And I had a chance to visit several of those uh, on my trip and went to one. Uh, we started a worship. We were there at 9.30 a.m., sang songs and danced and, and, and prayed and for 45 minutes, and about, about 45 minutes into this, uh, a Nepali Christian came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, hey, in just a minute, we're going to start the worship service. Thought, what, what have we been doing here for the last 45 or 50 minutes? I'm already soaking wet with sweat. Um, but he said, we're going to start in about 40, uh, just a few minutes. And we were there from 9.30 until 2.30, five hours of worship and instruction. Now, we did have a, a, a short break um, for a snack. So they brought out some, some apples and bananas and some, some crackers. And, but five hours of worshiping. And the thing is, when we were done, what was fascinating to me, among other things, it was about 90 degrees with about 90% humidity. And like half the people there, the Nepali folks, were in flannel shirts, long sleeves, and they weren't even glistening with sweat. I was sitting in a pool of my own sweat after about an hour wondering where the nearest five guys was. And these people were just, they, they were sad that, this, that the worship service was over. They were so enthralled with, so uh, grateful for God's grace that uh, they worship with incredible joy. And this is what, again, God's doing this all over the country, bringing hundreds of people to saving faith 
every day. And, and actually, you're part of that work. You're part of that work um, through your generous giving. Uh, we, we, one of the ministries we support is called the Timothy Initiative. And the Timothy Initiative, they planted 6,000 churches in Nepal just last year. Again, amazing stuff. And uh, here, just this church, our church, Capshaw, North Alabama, we've helped to plant nine or ten churches in Nepal over the last year. And, and over five years, the goal, and I think we're going to reach it by what I've observed, the goal is to plant 50 churches, at least 50 churches in 50, 50 different villages uh, in Nepal. And, and again, I believe God's going to make it happen. Now, we hear that, and you may ask the question, well, why is God not doing that sort of work here in the United States? Why don't we see people coming to Saving Faith at the same clip here in the United States? And I think there are a variety of reasons, but a couple stand out, I think, uh, right away. One is that people there are talking about Christ all the time with people. I mean, they're, they're so grateful for their salvation that they're telling people about Jesus, anybody that, that they meet. In fact, I talked to one young man who said that he had shared Christ with 100 people since February. So I don't know what that is, six, seven months. And he said 30 of those people had put their faith in Jesus Christ and been rescued and delivered. And so one of the reasons that, that God is doing such a great work there is because people are talking about Jesus. How many of us can say we've shared Christ with 100 people in our lifetime? How many of us can say we've shared Christ with one person since February? And so we see one of the things that's going on, again, is they're, they're talking about Jesus. But the other reason I think we see such an incredible work is that people are experiencing what, what can only be described as power encounters. God, God is rescuing people from demonic activity, from witchcraft, from curses, from, from sickness, disease, and, and all kinds of things. He's bringing them to saving faith. And part of that is because, I think, um, Nepal is what you would call a pre-Christian society. Pre-Christian doesn't mean pre-religious. It just means that in most of the villages of the country, there's not a gospel witness. The name of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed in most of the villages in Nepal. And so when, when the gospel is proclaimed in these pre-Christian uh, areas, then it's often accompanied by great power. God, God attends to that message with great miraculous power. We see that in the book of Acts. We study the book of Acts for over a year, and we see that what God did there. Well, we live in what's called a post-Christian world, following somewhat closely behind Europe. And it doesn't mean that there are no Christians, of course, but it means that just about every area of our world has been exposed to the gospel. The gospel witness has advanced into those areas. And, and even though there may be historically a sense of an embrace of a sort of Judeo-Christian ethic, now most people do not look to the Bible as the ultimate authority. And we see this by the number of people who identify as nuns, sort of non-religious, not part of any religious uh, denomination or affiliation. We see this by the number of people uh, who are rejecting, of course, the, the authority of the Bible on, on some of the most important areas uh, of our lives. And so in a post-Christian world, you'd be hard-pressed to find just about anybody who has not heard the name Jesus, but the authority of Jesus is no longer widely recognized. Again, we, we see it all around us. And in a post-Christian society, um, you don't typically see, because the gospel's been proclaimed already, you don't see 
uh, the sort of power encounters that you see in other parts of the world. But that doesn't mean that those living in a post-Christian culture like we're in, it doesn't mean that we're not involved in spiritual warfare. We are involved in very real spiritual warfare. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say, you know, about the sort of war that we would look forward to, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So we are, you and I are, we don't experience it in the same way as the people of Nepal and India and other places, but we are involved in real spiritual battle. This is the life of the Christian. And that brings us to our text this morning. Because we have the Lord's table and baptism, which we praise God for a little bit shorter section this morning, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. Let me read it, and we'll look at it together. Here reads the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, uh, does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So just remember from a minute the context here. So John is upper in years. He's, getting, he's old, um, and he's writing to these Christians who are sort of scattered around Ephesus in small churches, many of them. And, and what they're seeing is they're seeing their friends, the people they love and respect, leave the church. And in many cases, leave the faith altogether. They're being duped, being fooled by these false teachers whom they're following, and they're leaving the church, they're leaving the faith altogether. And these Christians in these churches to which John writes... Watch, as they watch their friends leave, what do you think they're thinking? They're thinking, how can I be sure that I won't be next? How can I be sure that I will persevere in the faith? How can I know for certain that I won't be one of those who abandons Jesus and His church? What if my friends are right? What if their teachers are actually the correct ones? Have you ever had someone you really care about or you really respect that they, they left the church and... and eventually just left the faith altogether. It's a bit unsettling, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's painful. It's hard to see happen. And, you know, it, it, it does sometimes prompt some questions in us, even at times existential questions. Well, this is what these folks were experiencing on a regular basis. And to them, John writes this letter filled with both warnings and encouragement. Throughout the letter, John reminds them of who they are in Christ, and he, and he gives them reasons to be confident. He says, by this you will know, he says repeatedly. And here in this passage, John exhorts them, and, and, and again, all Christians who will follow, to live a life of confident discernment by testing 
what they see and hear. So here's what we're going to do this morning from the text. We'll answer three questions. What are we testing? Some of you engineers and scientists are going to think, this sounds too much like my work, but what are we testing? How are we to conduct this test? And finally, what assurance can we have that we won't fail the test? So what are we testing? Um, How are we to conduct the test? And how do we know that we won't fail the test? So first of all, what are we testing? Look at verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So when John tells these Christians to test the spirits, he's not telling them to engage the spiritual world around them. He's not telling them to engage spiritual beings you know, by, by way of Ouija boards or mediums or incantations. He's not saying, try to reach out and contact the spirits. What he's saying by, by the word spirits is, he's referring to the utterances, the claims of those who say they speak for God. So these false prophets who have led so many astray, they're coming from within the church initially. They're leaving the church, but they're coming in the name of Jesus. And John instructs these believers to test them, regardless of whom they say they represent or how they say they've obtained their knowledge or or what they call themselves. So here's the first point this morning as it relates to what we're testing. All teachers and all teaching must be tested. This is the what that John prescribes here in terms of the test. All teaching and all teachers. Just because someone claims to be a Christian, just because someone has a large following or a seminary degree or even a European PhD, just because somebody has all the academic credentials or even has, again, a large following, it doesn't mean that he or she should be received without discernment. Just because someone comes in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that he or she is truly of Christ. I was walking uh, with three other guys in Kathmandu last week. Kathmandu is the capital city of, of Nepal. And if you've ever s- even seen the pictures of Nepal or India, you know that regardless of the time of day or night, there are just people everywhere. I mean, just you know, I, we're walking down. It's probably, I don't know, 8 o'clock p.m. And we're downtown Kathmandu, or wa- and, and there are people everywhere. It's like, you know, Disney World or walking in a parade only... People are driving everywhere and cars and motorcycles and people are brushing up against you with vehicles. I mean, it's really, really uh, crazy. So we're walking along and, and as we're walking along, there, there are shops everywhere. I mean, hundreds of shops on these narrow streets. And I, I, I took a one minute video that maybe I'll show you some other time or post it on social media, but it's hard to really even imagine the, just the congestion. But we're walking along and there's shops everywhere. And in some of these shops, Many of these shops, there are, there are clothing, there's clothing hanging that is, you know, what would purport to be well-known brands, hiking brands. So the North Face and Patagonia and Osprey and REI and all these well-known hiking brands because people come from all over the world to, to, to hike. And so I asked one of the guys with us who was from Nepal, I said, do you imagine that these, these brands are legit? And he just had this little man had this big belly laugh. He said, no. Just because it says the North Face doesn't mean it's the North Face. If you wore that on Mount Everest, you'd be dead because it's it's not going to keep you warm. 
And it's kind of like that with the false teaching. Just because it says of Christ, or just because it bears the name Christian, doesn't mean it's really of Jesus. In fact, if you embrace that sort of teaching, you'll be dead. Again, to carry on with the analogy. And so, just because it has that name on it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Well, the teaching that John is warning against, even though it came from within the church, and even though it purported to be of Christ, he says, no, it needs to be tested. Everything, he says, needs to be tested. Every philosophy of the age, every so-called critical theory, every definition of the world, we've already seen the world's definition of love and the world's definition of truth and just in John's gospel or John's letter, every single teaching, every philosophy, every ideal must be tested. Every preacher, including this one, and every sermon, including this one, must be tested. I think one of the great challenges uh, facing the Christian church today, and this is really a global phenomenon, is, is a lack of discernment, a terrible lack of discernment. If a church has experienced remarkable numerical growth, or they have a large uh, following on social media, or a preacher has uh, cultivated this huge platform, or especially if a preacher is friends with a few celebrities, uh, those are regarded as the marks of sort of reliability. You say, oh, i, I got to listen to this guy. He knows Justin Bieber. Right? So that means he's got to be trusted, right? So I, I think, you know, there's, there are these markers of sort of faithfulness that are causing many people to buy into teaching that, is, that goes against the Scriptures. But ever since the birth of the church, there have been false teachers. In fact, many of the New Testament letters are written to address such false teachers. Um, and things have not gotten better over the last 2,000 years. In fact, one uh, Pap- Baptist pastor and theologian, Ray Van Nest, writes this, In a particularly gullible age, the church desperately needs the discernment this text prescribes. Far too often Christians fall for false teachers and charlatans simply because they claim to speak for God and tack on a few Bible verses. Some authoritarian leaders suggest that to doubt them is to doubt God. And I could fill in, and you could too, a number of names that fit that right there. But this text calls us to examine every teacher. So we've got to pay very good attention to what we're reading, who's informing our theological understanding, what we're listening to. Now, of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't read broadly and widely. We should. But everything we read has to be tested Uh, And to make sure that it is reliable, that it's fair. But how do we test it? Well, John gives us the how by way of positive and negative criteria. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. By this, he says, here are the criteria, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already, to those who are watching their friends leave. And if you've experienced this, I have. It's very painful. And I, and I have faces in my mind right now, people that I know that really claim to love Jesus. And people even said they were going to become missionaries. And now they want nothing to do with Christ or the things of God. 
Well, to those who are watching their friends leave the church, and, and, and I'm sure in some way are concerned about their own faithfulness, whether they will stand up under pressure, John says, here's how you know if what you're getting is from the Spirit of God or from a false spirit, namely the Antichrist, by whether or not they rightly acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Messiah, God incarnate. So here's our second point as it relates to the how. The final test of any truth claim is what it states or implies about Jesus Christ. So if you want to know if a person, if a teacher, if a preacher, if a so-called scholar is teaching in a way that is, is faithful, is right, is reliable, is trustworthy, here's what you want to look at. What are they saying about Jesus? What are they saying about Jesus? Now, John's audience was dealing with two very different heresies, perhaps, than we're dealing with. They were dealing with uh, docetism, which uh, said that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. And then Gnosticism, which said that, that all physical matter is bad, and the only thing that's good is spiritual matter. And so uh, Jesus couldn't really have taken on real human flesh. Um, but the same test applies from generation to generation. Now think about some of the religions of our day and age. Whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Muslims, the ultimate question again is, what do they say about Jesus? What do they say about Jesus? If it's not consistent with the apostolic teaching and indeed the whole Scripture, the rest of Scripture, then it is not from the Spirit of God. And it's actually, I'm not the one saying this, this is what John says, it's actually from the Antichrist. So if it's not consistent with the biblical revelation, it is from the evil one who wants to deceive people into embracing a religion where the real Christ is not proclaimed. You know, I read, there's a lot of, there's so much violence going on in our world, and in, in even our country, isn't there? And I read about some of the cities that I lived in, some of the cities where, where I had ministry or drove through or whatever. I'm thinking like Chicago and Little Rock and Memphis and I didn't live in Memphis, but there are some of these cities we read about, and there's so much violence going on. And we might read about that violence and think, well, surely Satan has a real stronghold there. And I think, to some degree, this is absolutely true, right? But I think it's worth asking a question, is that really what a city would look like if Satan were ruling it in a supreme way? In the mid early 1950s, there was a Presbyterian pre preacher, a pastor out of Philadelphia, Donald Gray Barnhouse, fantastic pastor and preacher. and um, He had a radio show that was broadcast pretty much nationwide on CBS. And he asked the question in one of his radio broadcasts, what would happen if Satan took over a city? And of course, you know, you, the responses, the, the quick responses were, well, you would have, you'd have more violence and you'd have, uh, you know, more bars and more strip clubs and... and you know, all kinds of things. There'd be people would be angry, and all this stuff was going would be going on. And, and certainly understand, you know, why we might feel that way. But Dr. Barnhouse said, no, that's actually not what would happen if Satan took over a city entirely. In fact, he said it would be the opposite. He said all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday 
where Christ is not preached. Now, that's a pretty harrowing thought, isn't it? Now, you can interpret that in one of two ways. One is that Satan wants people in churches where the preaching is all law and no gospel. In other words, every week you get a new challenge. My challenge for you this week is to do this. It's all law. It's all things to do. The focus of every sermon is on what we need to do rather than what God has done for us in Christ. Because messages filled with all challenges and no gospel encouragement, they, they lead us to believe that salvation is really a, our own project. It's something we have to do. And when, we, when the law of God becomes something we can meet, if we just try hard enough, rather than something that exposes our sins and leaves us condemned before a holy God, when that happens, then our desperate need of a Savior is lost. And we start to believe, you know, all I have to do is show signs of improvement and everything will be fine. So that's one way I think you can interpret what Dr. Barnhouse said. But there's another way to look at it, and I think it also be a right interpretation. And that is Satan would also love for people to pack parishes, synagogues, or temples where a version of Jesus is preached that is not the true Jesus. It's a Jesus who's not fully God and fully human, a Jesus who's not competent to save. Satan is, is called the great deceiver and the accuser, and he wants nothing more than for people to either determine that they don't really need Jesus because they're, they're doing fine you know, on their own, or he wants them to embrace a Jesus who's not fully God and fully man which is the case with every one of the religions that I just mentioned a moment ago. He's not fully God, and He's not fully man, and therefore He's not a suitable substitute for our sins. Now, I mentioned that the final test of any truth claim is what it states or implies about Jesus. Not just what it expressly states, but what it also implies. It's not just the false religions in focus here, but also the false gospels of those who claim to be Christians, because they too diminish Jesus. Now think about, let me just give you four, the gospel of moralism, which says really at the heart of the Christian life is, is just to become a better person. you got to grow and become better, and, and you know what God really wants is steady improvement. Well, if that's the case, what does that imply about Jesus? He didn't really have to die for us, did He? Because what God really wants is improvement, not sinless perfection, which we absolutely cannot attain. Well, what about the gospel of politeness? You know, what, what, this is you know, pervasive in some areas. What God really wants of us is to be very polite and very friendly and to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and, and be very, you know, sort of smiling all the time. And this is just, you know, Christianity just equates to being overly friendly. Well, what does that say about Jesus? Well, Jesus remembers the one. G.K. Chesterton famously said, threw the temple furniture down the stairs. You know, he wasn't known for his politeness. He was known, in fact, he said the religion, he called the religious leaders of his day basically a bucket of snakes. That's not that polite, is it? So what does it, so what does it imply about Jesus? What about the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel, which is very rampant in, in the, what we call the global south, the prosperity gospel says if you don't have enough good things, you don't have all that you need, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you really had enough faith, you wouldn't suffer. Now, what does that imply about Jesus? Well, Jesus suffered more than anyone, more than anyone ever has, 
and more than anyone ever will. Not simply because he was hungry and tired and, and had no place to lay his head, but because he actually suffered the full brunt of the Father's wrath on him for the sins that he never committed, for the sins of the world. If you believe the prosperity gospel, then you have to reject the Jesus of the Bible. Well, what about the, the therapeutic gospel, which says, well, God's in heaven, and what he really wants more than anything for all of you is just to be happy. He just wants you to be happy. Well, what does that imply about Jesus? Jesus was called what? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Is that because Jesus didn't really understand the gospel? See, it's not just about the, the very direct and explicit false teaching that we have to test. It's also every so-called gospel that posits a view of God in Christ that doesn't mesh with Scripture. So how do we avoid this error? To my earlier question, what assurance can we have that we won't fail the test? Look at verse 4 again. Little children, John says, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, do you see the rhythm? There's a beautiful rhythm to this book. And I know as Pastor Adam and Pastor Chris preached the last couple of weeks, and uh, John Kirkpatrick, one of our elders, as they, they've addressed the, the preach from this book, you see that rhythm over and over. And that is warning followed by encouragement, caution followed by assurance, law followed by gospel. What we're supposed to do followed by and anchored in what has already been done for us in Christ. So here in the middle of, of acknowledging that there are antichrists in the world who are successfully duping people into following them, John says, but you won't be fooled. Don't worry. You won't be fooled. You are from God, and the one in you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is greater than the one in the world, which is Satan. There are false teachers everywhere. I mean, this is then and it's now. And some of the false teachers, I believe, are actually earnest. They're, they're just confused. They're misguided. They've been misled. But they're still being used as pawns by the evil one. And then there are also false teachers who are not earnest. In fact, their intent is to deceive and to destroy. They, too, are being used as pawns by the evil one. But these pawns of Satan, that John refers to as lowercase spirits, don't even compare, he says, to the one in, who dwells inside the believer who is the Spirit of God Himself. If you are a Christian this morning, if you put your faith in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, trusted in the cross work of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, then the Spirit of God lives in you. From the moment that you were regenerated, from the moment you were born again from above, from the moment you profess Christ as Lord, the Spirit of God lives in you, empowering you to obey God, enabling you to be God's witnesses, and encouraging you in God's love. But what does that mean in the context of today's passage? In other words, why did John bring that up to these Christians? Well, the message of the gospel... God come down in the flesh to save a sin-cursed world is completely counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit well with the way we believe the world should be. The Apostle Paul says it's foolishness to the so-called wise of the world. The gospel announces to a people hell-bent on securing salvation by being good enough, 
by doing more good than bad that you can actually never actually be good enough. You can never be good enough that all of our best efforts fall infinitely short of God's glory. The gospel announces that God the Son became human, endured all the suffering common to humanity, died for our sins, and lived for our righteousness. See, sometimes we talk about the gospel, we talk only about the forgiveness of sins. And a lot of Christians seem to believe that the full extent of the gospel is Jesus Christ died for my sins. So that when I trust in Him, I am forgiven of all my sins. And praise God, that's absolutely 100% true. But that's only half the story. That's only one snippet of the good news. If that's all there is, then what Jesus does is He cleans us up and He puts us at the starting line. And the rest of the race is up to us. Now, if that's the case, the message of salvation is much like that last scene in Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen this, this movie? Um, in the final scene, the officer who's played by Tom Hanks, he's dying. And he, he, has, he has saved Private Ryan, which is, of course, where we get the name of the movie from. And he has Private Ryan right there in front of him, I recall, played by Matt Damon. And he's, and he's right there, and he's kind of leaned back against this wall, and he's, he's all dirty and bloody, and he's got... You know, his hands are quivering. He's about ready to die. And he brings Private Ryan close. And he whispers to him in one of his final breaths, right there as he's just about ready to expire. He whispers to Private Ryan after he's saved. And what does he say? He says, earn this. Earn this. And so what he's saying is, yeah, I saved your life. I am the one who saved you. But now, now it's up to you. Now you have to fill it out. Now you have to show that you're worthy of being saved. Now you have to get there on your own because I won't be here for you anymore. Well, that's the way that so many of us look at salvation, the gospel. Well, God's done His part. He's, he's cleaned us up. He's put us, at, put us at the starting line. And now I have to earn it. Now I have to get there. Now I have to finish. Now I have to prove that I'm worth being saved. But the forgiveness of sins is only half of the good news. The the rest of the good news is that by faith in Jesus Christ, we not only receive God's forgiveness, praise God, we also receive the righteousness of Jesus. So when we believe, we're not just put at the starting line. God takes us all the way to the finish line. It's all of Him. He doesn't say, you know, now I've saved you. Now you're on your own. Prove to me that you're worth being saved. No, he takes us all the way to the finish line. I love the way that my son's pastor in in Escondido describes this, this salvation. He says, it's as if you got an email from God with an attachment in the email. And and in the email, God says, just he says, see the attached resume. You are hereby authorized to remove the name on it and replace it with your name. And you open up the attachment and you see that it's Jesus' resume attached to the email. And you open up the resume and you replace Jesus' name on the resume with your name. That's the fullness of the gospel. 
It's not just the forgiveness of sins, although praise God, it's that. And if you've trusted in Christ, you don't have to worry about what you've done in the past. You don't have to worry about what you did this morning. You don't have to worry about the future condemning you. You are forever forgiven in Jesus. But it's so much richer than that. God now sees you as perfectly righteous. Christ's resume as your resume. No more earning no more keeping score, no more proving your worth, no more pressure to justify your existence. You are loved by Christ, loved in Christ always. And you are reckoned this very morning as righteous before God by faith alone. All the commands of God, God looks at you and considers you obedient to every single one of them because of Christ. But it's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, that, that's hard to believe. Some of you right now, I can see it. You're, you're mad at me for saying it. It's hard to believe that the righteousness of Christ would actually be ours by faith alone. In fact, it's such good news, if you didn't have a hard time believing it, that I would question whether or not I've accurately explained the gospel. But, it's, but it goes beyond just good news that we're called to accept. It's actually good news that the Spirit of God applies to our hearts and souls and makes us able to believe and live in light of. It's so hard to believe that it requires the Spirit of God's, Spirit of God's enablement for us to believe it. But that's what the Spirit of God does. That's what the Spirit of God actually delights in doing. For Jesus' glory and our good. See, while all the spirits of the world that John references here, they seek to diminish Jesus and His salvation. The Spirit of God continually accentuates Jesus and celebrates His completed work and reminds us and persuades us that Jesus' work was enough. Here's our final point this morning as it relates to how we can know that we'll pass the test, the Spirit of God inside us grants and preserves our faith in a world of counterfeit spirits. If you've trusted in Christ,